2: Sasha Koka, and I'm back this week with guest co-host Marisa Lagos to bring you another interview in our series, Mixed, Stories of Mixed-Race Californians.
3: The most common question that I got growing up was, what are you? I just never understood why, why can't you include all of me? You know, where do
2: I fit in? Who do I identify with?
3: I need all my mixed people to talk about it. Express yourself, your perspective. I'm mixed, and I'm proud of it. Being myself and having an awesome family. I have always been a mixed person. I wouldn't know how to think of myself otherwise, and I'm not planning on changing.
1: (laughs) Today, we're devoting our entire show to a California writer whose groundbreaking work opened new frontiers around discussions of the intersection of gender,
2: sexuality, race, and class.
0: My name is Shuri Moraga, and we're in Sacramento Califas.
2: Cherie Moraga is a playwright and an author, and she's a professor at UC Santa Barbara. She co-edited this groundbreaking book called This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. I read it when I was a teenager, and it was life-changing for me, especially Cherie's essay called La Guera, which is about being a mixed-race queer woman who's light-skinned, or guera in Spanish and about how people sometimes perceive her as only white, how she experiences privilege in the world because of that, but also vulnerability because she's queer. All of that really resonated for me in my teens. There were so few places I saw my own experience reflected. Yeah, and for me, I really wanted to dig into Cherie's
1: experience growing up mixed-race in Southern California with a Mexican parent, how she thinks about claiming her Chicana heritage, her mestizaje, in a state where
2: having Latin American in the mix can mean a lot of different things. Cherie invited us to her home in Sacramento to talk with her about her reflections on mixed-race identity and how it intersects with her life as an artist and activist. So here it is, our interview with Cherie Moraga. When you talk about your background or identity, what words do you use?
0: I think it depends on who I'm talking to. <laughs> Since the uh, very, very late 70s, early 80s, with the publication of my first book, This Bridge Called My Back, I just called myself Chicana. And then if you open up the book and you read past the first paragraph, you will know I'm mixed blood. You know, Mexican on my mother's side. And um, I was going to say Anglo on my father's side, but, you know, when you started doing all that ancestry stuff, I found out actually my father is half Jewish. It never, was never mentioned, and my grandmother was actually fully Jewish. On so wow. my father's side, yeah, it's news, news to all of us. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to open talking about this, but this was... But That's that, really fascinating. Yeah, it yeah. is fascinating, because then you say Anglo, and I go, the whole time, my dad's, you know, I just always called my dad a wasp, you know?
2: You use the word mixed blood, and you mm-hmm. use that in your writing, too, mm-hmm. you? and I just wonder if you want to tell us a little bit more about that term.
0: Well, I've used a lot of terms, you know, I've used mestiza, I've used mixed blood, I've used half-breed and very consciously, you know, when we were children, my sister, brother and I are the only mixed blood kids, you know, in the in our big family, many many relations. And they always just called us half and half right? We were just half and half. Us, too.
2: That's what my, oh, that's really? what my cousins called us, too. Cream and coffee. That's why we were talking about cream and coffee. Oh, I maybe like, oh. that was it. I
0: mean, but um, it depends on the vantage point. So if you're speaking in English, I mean, and I, and I also referred to myself as the mestizas mestiza, because my mother, you know, as, as Mexicanos, you know, it's a long history of how Me- Mexico then made the citizens of Mexico mestizos, right? Where, in fact the vast majority were more indigenous than Spanish. There wasn't that many Spanish who came in. And also Africano, they African. So all of that mestizaje, that mestizaje is anybody's guess. And so it was really the Chicano movement that brought up our understanding of being indigenous as well. Like kind of say, no, we're also indigenous Americans. You know, now there's so much more sophisticated language about it. And I'm not sure if I like all the sophistication. But Now you can say, well, she's white presenting, right? So you can go into the store and, you know, no one's going to trip on you, you know, like that, uh, unless you have an accent and that kind of changes things or the kind of language you might use, your inflection, whatever. However you look impacts how people perceive you, which then affects how you see yourself, right? So racism is real and shade is real, right? So trying to, to talk about that and still say that if you ask me how I feel, I feel like a Mexican, right? And so partly my relationship to that has to do with the fact that, and this is my theory, is that my mother was the person of color.
1: Tell us a little bit about your mom.
0: So my mother is not an educated woman. Um, she was a she was a survivor <laughs> on many, many levels, but also very um, farm worker when she was quite young, and then they moved to Tijuana during the, the depression, and um she began working in the Agua Caliente racetrack. I have to say every value I had and have was formed by who she was in our family, so kind of her, her her relationship to spirituality, her relationship to all the hard stuff, like telling the truth and, you know, to be ethical and to have compassion. I mean, all that. I mean, she, and she was also really hard, you know. She was a very impassioned woman, and, you know, she used to beat the hell out of us. And I also said she was, you know, the great love of my life. Because I think she taught me a certain compassion that I think has really sort of impacted the, the way I became a writer.
2: So tell us where you grew up.
0: I grew up a, a, like a block and a half from the San Gabriel Mission. I <laughs> hated that place. Because, you know, I went to Catholic schools and everything. And I, I knew I was queer from the time I was quite young. So that Catholic education was very damaging to me. So I don't have a lot of good memories about San Gabriel Mission. You've
2: written about how your cousins actually were treated differently, right? Like you were all one family, then you go to Catholic school, and you're read differently yeah. at school. And you had your dad's last name at right. that point.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
2: So the world like perceived you as well. Yes,
0: exactly. Exactly. My closest prima hermana, my cousin's sister, um, Cynthia, were really tight. And, you know, she was a brown woman. And it was just very recently that we actually really talked about race. And it was curious to me because I said, come on. what so I go? Cindy, I mean, look at life, man. You know, it's like it had something to do with the mean, It wasn't. And she's, you know, she's had a good life. But also there were obstacles she had. But I say to her, it's, I said, Cindy, man, it's like you're, we're walking through the world. Look at me. Look at you. She goes, I know. She goes, how come we never talk about that? And the family never talked about it. And so my writing early on was always about that. that the first essay I wrote was called La Huera, you know. And so La Huera basically means that, you know, you can pass for white. I hate that language. Because it's not, it's not what I learned from black people. When they talked about passing, right, they meant the person was intentionally making a decision that they were going to deny that they were black. And so when people start saying, oh, well, you're pass," you know, like you're white passing. I'm going, I didn't decide that. But at the same time, I understand what they mean about you can be read that way. Then say you can be read for that, but not passing. Because passing means you're going to deny your people. And I'm not going to, you know, it's a choice. You know, my brother's, you know, is a (laughs) passer. But I said, but I, you know, and so, yes, there's privilege in that. And there's also a ton of heartache, man. They want to separate you from, you're not like them, you know. Oh, no, you guys couldn't be cousins. You know, and it was always, you know, and you could feel the prejudice in it, you know, and it's very painful.
1: I just wonder how you think about holding both identities that are within you. Because you say, you know, your brother basically chose the white identity and you have very much leaned in to your Mexican Chicano heritage. So and yet both are there,
0: right? I'm not the only one in the world that thinks like this, you know, that you have a deeper identification with one side of your family by virtue who loved you. I mean, who really loved you, you know? And you asked about my father. I mean, you know, he's, hes you know, I love my father. But he did not know how to love.
1: It's like your relationship with your mother and her family and with your father. Like, if he had been a different person, maybe you would feel different.
0: It's not like I don't want to know anything, you know? It's not like I'm denying who I am. If you're telling me is that my road in this life is to be a white American, I'm not there. I don't want it, you can keep it, you know, cause it's all lost to me. If everything that I thought was of value suddenly is denigrated by, you know, the, the powers that be in this country, uh, no, that, that's, you know, it's, yes, it's structural racism. So you say it's structural racism, but it's deeply intimate as well. Yeah. It's experienced deeply intimately. So, so, so the point being is that yes, had my father been a different kind of man, maybe I would have, and had, he had more relations too. There was no family there because we had a huge family on the other side, right? So what I understood as home, you know, is Mexican.
1: This is like really resonating with me because my mom's half Armenian, my dad's half Mexican, but, and I grew up with my white grandmas, but like I didn't know their families. So like I have always identified more, even though I'm only a quarter of each with those, Parts of my, you know, like yeah. family because, yeah. yeah, that's who was there. Yeah. That's who showed up. That's who cooked for me. That's exactly. who showed me their history. argument like where, and, you know, you talk about in that essay that you didn't understand firsthand what it meant to be discriminated against, to be brown, but you did understand the joy of that part of you. And I, I just wonder, like, how you, over time, like that conflict between, you know, having parts of us that are oppressor and oppressed um, has sort of developed or, or has it changed at all since then?
0: Well, one thing I did know. Growing up was the discrimination my family experienced. So, just because it wasn't happening to me, the how many people I love, well, then, you know, that's incredibly difficult and also uh, raises your consciousness, you know. I also, in my relations with women of color and in my partnerships, my love partnerships with women of color over the years, I've learned a lot. <laughs> you know? And it hasn't been easy. There is privilege and power attached to being light-skinned in this world, like the big duh of the world. Duh, right? But when you're talking in terms of intimate relationships, how they function in an intimate relationship can be very problematic. And we all have, you know, strengths and weaknesses. But where does strength and weaknesses collide with race? Mm -hmm. Right? So you can say, Tell me the truth. And the person across from you crumbles. Now, why are they crumbling? Are they crumbling because they're a black woman at that particular moment where you hit something and I'm too ignorant to know it? It could very well be. We never talk about all of that stuff. Mm. You know, that's what just kind of got me as a writer. I feel very fortunate because on a certain level you get to ask these questions. But But I'm often disappointed that we never really get in it. This is what art is about, frankly.
2: Well, and, and you found home among communities of women of color, and it sounds like you really walked into embracing that identity as a woman of color because that's who you knew you are on the inside, even if the world didn't read you like that. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that journey of giving yourself permission to own who you know you are versus how the world might have read you?
0: I mean, it's an ongoing question. I think probably in Santa Barbara, you know, teaching there and it being a, a pl- so stratified place where there is a white, really, ruling class and there is a Mexican service class. And if I'm not with other women of color you know you go to the store you go whatever and you treat like a white person and I hate it <laughs> but you know I mean when I say I hate it well, what the hell is that Cherie I mean come on oh oh you hate it you know that's um too bad you know what I mean and that's why it's so complicated because never am I saying you know like pobre de me poor me you know that is just useless recently in DePaul I was doing a gig in so I walk in, it's all this traza, you know, all rasa and, 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 and some other, you know, there's some, some black women, but mostly it was chicanos, chicanas. And I walk in, and I can see the disappointment in their faces, some of them. And I, I've spelt that many times. That's not who they planned. Sometimes it makes me really sad, because I want to be real brown for them. Not for me, because I'm still thinking the things that they loved, that they read, that they believed in. But I also know when not to show up. You know, when some of the women I know, Chican and Dihina women are gonna go do their conference, I'm, I'm not going. You know, I can't show my face there. I'll write everything you want me to do. I'll write tons of stuff behind the scenes. They don't need my face there. So that, that time I said to them, I go, I'm sorry. I saw your faces fall. This is not who you expected. And there was one sister, a black sister in the front, and she looks at me and she goes, like she gave me this huge, like, sigh of relief, like somebody had finally said something that <laughs> was true. Like that you acknowledged it? That it? I acknowledged it, right? When everybody's thinking it anyway. But I think this issue of
2: self-censorship or or walking in with your vulnerability and wanting to apologize for your privilege runs really deep I mean I feel that right like I'm a South Asian journalist I go to the South Asian Journalists Association and I show up and they're like what you're Indian what how did that happen you got blue eyes yeah that doesn't make sense either you are the sum of your parts right
0: not just one thing it's so hard to talk about this because I don't feel like I'm standing in front of them, claiming my privilege. That is not what I'm doing. When I say, I'm sorry, I'm not apologizing for my privilege. I am telling them, I recognize what you need. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's different. It's different. And that's the trouble is that we have all this language that talks about power and privilege and all that, that never quite is it. Because I'm not, I'm not going to apologize for how I turned out, you know, but I know what they needed. And I love them, (laughs) you know, it's just like, I'm sorry, you guys, I know what you need. You know, that is not like, nothing defaces me in that. They deserve to be recognized. And the best way that they can be recognized, if they have suffered racism by visually, how they visually present, is to have somebody also in that skin telling them that. But that's not what they got that night. But they got a lot of really good things.
1: For me, one thing growing up with a very, you know, Latina-sounding name in San Diego, but not speaking Spanish, not being from a household that was super culturally Mexican, like I always had a lot of ambivalence about if I was allowed to claim my Mexican heritage. And I just wonder if the language issue, was that ever a thing that made you feel other within the Mexican community?
0: Oh, yeah. Still. Still. Because of Spanglish, your ear is tuned to understand Um, Spanish much more than being able to speak it. I went to Mexico. uh, I just suffered. (laughs) I mean, I'd go by myself. I would take these sojourns to immerse myself in the language. I've done more fairly recently um, presentations, et cetera, in in Mexico. But it's really hard for me because I don't, you know, it's like this. You're talking about the level of, you know, Intellectualism and language access that you have in in English is so not what I have in Spanish, you know. So I have to be really humble and speak very slowly, and and attentively, and you know, I can't say that I am fluent like you know the way I would love to be.
2: Well, language is such a calling card, right? And particularly for for folks with immigrant parents you know we'd be at the family things they're all joking I'm not getting yeah, yeah, the jokes yeah, right yeah. language is like it's no, a it's calling, calling card. card yeah it's not it's just membership. shade it's not just color it's can you can you tell the jokes mm-hmm. yeah can you laugh at the right
0: times partly that's why I made it such a mission to try to at least be able to hang you know it's kind of like that because you miss out you miss out and 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 also in the very end when my mom had Alzheimer's I spoke to her and my tia who they a bunch of them got Alzheimer's and I spoke to them in Spanish because that's their first tongue and they they remember that better than English you know and gradually I was speaking um more and more Spanish to my mom which was very pleasurable to talk that way with her you know it's kind of like you went you went home home you know
1: that's funny my grandfather would never because he grew up in New York and was discriminated against for being Mexican, did not speak Spanish to his kids. And I remember, yeah, when he was dying, he sort of reverted back to it. Yeah.
0: Because it's their, what you remember and best. And it's their best self, man. Because, I mean, it's like, a, I mean, the best self in the sense of that our first language is always our language of heart, you know. So you get their hearts back, you know. <laughs>
2: are multidimensional people. And so for you, your queerness, did it change your perspective on your mixed identity?
0: Yeah, that's what Loetta was all about. Because it it was my avenue to understanding being other in society. You know, I was coming of age in the late 60s in high school and stuff. And so, you know, feminism was beginning and, you know, all of this. And I always just figured, our second-class citizenship in the world in in the context of my family. Certainly, I, I think being a female, in the context of my family, one suffered a lot, you know. We suffered a lot. We did. My mother had a lot of, you know, internalized misogyny, for lack of a better word. But being queer, because it was a side of silence that I'd known as long as I could remember,
2: for me, La Huera, reading La Huera when I was a young teenager coming out mixed, you know, in in L.A. growing up, was so pivotal for me and made me feel like I could claim that space in a way too. Because I grew up with a big Indian family. My dad's from India, San Gabriel. That's where the family lived. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, th- those were the people who loved me, and and my mom's white side of the family also loved me. Mm-hmm. But I also felt like you know. I was read as other than my cousin. So a lot of the things that you wrote about, I feel like gave me permission as a young, queer, mixed, light-skinned
0: teenager. I was like, wow, she opened the door. When you're younger and nothing's written that you can recognize about, like you never read this and you're writing something where it's never, you've never read it. I so you're pushing against, you're at war. So the language can sometimes be really... Fuerte. But the biracial part that I was seeing this move in the beginning is where people were saying they were biracial, right? And or saying that they were mixed blood without any position in it. That somehow this is white. It's a mixture with white
2: mm-hmm. and
0: people of color, right? Mm-hmm. That there was no um, grappling with it. You know, so like I like do, uh, if I do a lot of speaking engagements, then I'd have a young mixed blood person coming up to me and, and they'd say, oh, you know, I'm mixed blood too. And they're like, okay. You know, and I'm saying, what are you doing about it? (laughs) Right. I mean, what are you doing about it? Because otherwise you are just, if you are just white then. What I'm trying to say is that there is an accountability to what we know. Mm -hmm. And if being mixed blood impacted what you know, or, and what you don't know, you are accountable to both of those sides of you. Like anything, if we're asking white people to be accountable because they're white, you know, and th- then it's the same principle if you have those privileges, but at the same time, you have a deep love and you know things, and you've also experienced, you know, prejudice, even if it was never recognizable to anybody but you because of being mixed. So that's what I say to them. It's like, so how has that changed your mind? And if it's changed your mind, how does that change your action? How do you bring yourself to bear on the situation. You look at where power is in the room, because there's always a power play going on. Most of the time, there's something going on. But if it's a power thing going on, and I know they're homophobes, I'm gonna come out, Mm. you know? If it's, if I know that they're racist, I'm gonna be as brown as they get to, I'm gonna talk every brown thing coming out. You know, it's like whatever it takes because that's strategically intelligent, right? You don't use your identity to belong. You walk in belonging or you walk in with your knowledge that you have a right to be in the room, but you do not try to work your way into belonging or saying, I got cred too because I, I'm this and I'm have that. You know, we you can't, it's, it It's is like you will be destroyed. Right? Maybe not in the room, but when you leave the room, you're gonna be destroyed. You know, and I don't mean that that I don't mean because people are mean, it's because it's not authentic, it's not true. So this is a delicate dance we're talking about. You know, it agitates, it disturbs, you're not comfortable. And what entitled people try to do is get comfortable really, really quick. So our job, all of us in this room here, is when we're uncomfortable. Not to be so quick to put the name on it and figure it out. Check out your discomfort. Just don't say nothing. Just check it out. Move with it. Feel what's going you know, what it is, right? And and I think that's for every everybody. Everybody.
1: Thank you so much for having us over and sharing all of this.
0: Yeah, thank you. It's really great to meet you and talk to you. Thank you. It's nice to have you in our home, and I wish you all well.
2: Coming up next week in our series, Mixed, Stories of Mixed Race California. We'll chat with psychologist Dr. Jen Noble, who specializes in talking to parents of mixed-race kids. If you just say,
3: oh honey, we're all human, there's only the human race, you're fine, that is gonna be more harmful, because the kid's like, no, I know something is different here.
1: And Rahul Yates, the teen host of the Mixed by Gen Z podcast.
3: I try to stay away from saying, like, I'm 50% Indian, 50% white. I can be 100% of both.
2: We'll hear their advice for parents and teens navigating the experiences of living in a mixed race family. That's all coming up next week on the California Report Magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Katrina Schwartz is our interim senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer director. Brendan Willard
1: is our sound engineer. And Jessica Carissa helped produce this episode. I'm Marisa Lagos.
2: And I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report Magazine. Your state, your stories.